right. Today we are going to be taking a look at the letter to the church in Colossae, which is titled Colossians. And so I invite you to turn over to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to read a little section that really is at the center of the entire letter. And so please change, uh, go over to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 15 and we're going to read through verse 20 together. And it begins like this. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. As you are, we do have Kingdom Kids today, which is our ministry for kiddos who have aged out in the nursery at four years old through kiddos who are in second grade. And we just had a promotion, so keep that in mind, okay, that once they hit that third grade, we want to encourage them to stay in the service with us. gives us a chance. And they're going to meet right over here. All the kiddos are going to meet right over here. Y'all are really subdued today. Usually there's a lot more noise and activity. Look at you guys. On your best manners, very impressive. <laughs> is my kid over there? I don't know. Okay, all right. <laughs> and they're going to have a chance to worship at their level right next door in our downstairs of our education building. Parents, keep in mind whether you have a kiddo in the nursery or you have a kiddo participating in Kingdom Kids, if you need to pick them up before the service, you'll need to ring the little doorbell. Just follow the instructions on the door. You won't have any problems. And then after service, of course, you can pick them up uh, right over next door in our education building. Okay. So we are going through a Bible reading plan together, taking us through the New Testament. And each week uh, we are reading together and I'm preaching something out of what we read. And today I'm going to be preaching out of Colossians. Even though you haven't read a whole lot in Colossians just yet, you'll be wrapping it up in your reading plan this week. But I want to encourage you, if you have not been a part of the reading plan and you don't already have a Bible reading plan, jump in with us. Don't worry about trying to catch up all the way from the beginning. Just jump in where we're at this week and read along with us. We have some plans in the back that look like this. Just grab one of those. There's some other instructions in there on how to spend time with the Lord every day, and we hope that will bless you. But before we take a look at Colossians, I want to just pause for a moment and ask if you would, please pray with me. Let's pray together. Father God, we come here this morning to worship you and to hear from you that we may leave here this afternoon ready to face another week. God, I know that there are those who come this morning who are struggling with many challenges and, and those who are distracted by other concerns. And, and God, we just need your help. We need your help even now to, to focus our minds' attention on what you have to say to us. We pray, Father, you'd soften our hearts that we might receive it. Father, that you'd ready our hands and feet that what you have to show us in your word, we can go and live out in our lives. This we pray in the name of Jesus. 
Amen. <clears throat> well, I don't know if you've seen this uh, circulate anywhere on social media or maybe even people wear t-shirts or it's a bumper sticker or something on their car or something like that. But sometimes you'll see this little phrase that says, blank is life. And the blank could be a number of things. Anybody seen that before? You know what I'm talking about? Or you've heard the phrase before, right? Uh, blank is life. Especially around this time of year, you may see something like hunting is life, fishing is life. What, you got some other examples over here? <laughs> that is, that is great. <laughs> We're getting there. Don't jump ahead. All right. And then you got like, a, uh, if, you're, if you're sports, this is the time of year, football is life. You know, if you, if you are very family oriented, sometimes we can say family is life, right? Or sometimes that's probably the most popular one. Or if you're into video games, gaming is life, right? There's something that you, we fill in the blank, something is life, okay? And, and whether we have a bumper sticker or have social media accounts or whatever the case is, that phrase is going to be the center of our lives. We are going to fill in that blank with something personally. We are going to put something in that blank. And we, and we may not be conscious of it, we may not be totally aware of it, but we are going to fill in that blank. Something to us is not just a part of our lives, but is at the center of our lives. It has the place of supremacy in our lives. Or maybe you could say it this way, it has a place of preeminence in our lives. It, and that, those words mean it holds first place, not just a place, but there's something that holds the first place in our lives. So it's kind of obvious to point this out. Whatever you fill in, in that blank, is super important, right? Whatever you're going to place at the center of your life is obviously a very important thing. And you, you're making a decision about that. Whether it's conscious or unconscious, we are making a decision about what will we place at the center of our life. And that decision is an incredibly important one. And so you know we're in church, you know you're hearing a sermon, you already know the answer, right? You already know where we're going, and if you're, if you're listening during the scripture reading, then you already heard the answer, right? That Jesus is to have that place of supremacy. What could be more important than him? The answer, of course, is nothing. But also it's true that not only is he the most important, but therefore should be at the center of our life, but nothing we do should diminish that role in our, in our lives. And that's really how we got the letter to the church in Colossae. Uh, Paul is, these are called the prison epistles. Epistle means a letter, you know. And we are right in the midst of this, and, and Paul has written a series of letters. He's in, uh, he's in Rome. He's under house arrest. Uh, he's there because of his preaching and teaching and work in the gospel. And while he's there, he makes good use of his time. He writes letters to those uh, who need to hear from him. And it's interesting because this church in Colossae, unlike the others that we've talked about so far, so far like in Ephesus uh, and, and in Philippi, Paul has never been to this church. And you say, well, well, how did this church get started then? Because Paul was the guy. He was the missionary going around telling people about Jesus, particularly the people who were non-Jewish. And that's much of what makes up the church in Colossae. So how did this church even get started? It's kind of neat. I'm glad we're talking about Texas missions today because it's kind of like that. All right. So Paul was in a city called Ephesus. That's where we get the letter to the Ephesians. And he is teaching and preaching there. You can read about it in Acts chapter 19. And there's a guy, Epaphras, who comes from Colossae to Ephesus, hears Paul, is converted. In other words, he becomes a Christian, and then he goes back home. 
to tell people about Jesus. And that's what we're talking about, right? This week, that's what we're praying for, is that people in our own backyard will go and tell people about Jesus. That's, what, that's our emphasis in our Texas prayer and our, and our Mary Hill Davis offering. It's the emphasis to don't neglect telling people in your own backyard about Jesus. And so that's what Epaphras does. He goes back to his hometown of Colossae. He tells people about Jesus. A church starts, and then they start to run into some trouble. There starts to be some false teaching, which, which is often the case, either Christians acting up or false teachings going on. That's how we got a lot of the Bible, y'all. So, you know, there's blessings in disguise here because we wouldn't have this letter if it wasn't for this. But, of course, Paul's concerned. He hears that there's some false teaching going on in the church. And so he, Epaphras comes and delivers this report. And then Paul is going to send back this letter with Epaphras back to his home church so they can hear what's going on. All this is taking place around 62 A.D. I want to read just a little description to you of this, of this issue that they're facing, okay? The false teaching that comes to Paul's, uh, come to Paul's attention that he's addressing here. Uh, the, the, our best guess is that this has something to do with a local mixture of both Jewish and non-Jewish folk religion. Uh, a central feature of this uh, religion was, was a tendency for them to call down angels to help protect them from evil spirits. And when Paul hears about this, he realizes what they're doing. When they're calling down angels to protect them from evil spirits, what are they saying? They're saying, Jesus is not enough. We need someone in addition to him. Jesus is not supreme enough. We need more help than Jesus can provide. And so they, they are being taught this and they're listening to this and Paul is concerned about this. And, if so, and of course, Paul writes back. And that's how we get kind of the center, the heart of this letter to the church in Colossae, which is that Jesus is to be supreme. He is to be center of our lives. That's what the word there uh, in Greek is, uh, proteo, and I'm not a Greek scholar, y'all know this, but if you ever want to look up Greek words to things in the Bible, you know, the New Testament's written in Greek specifically. If you want to look something up like that, if you go to blueletterbible.com, it may be .org, but you can type in the address, and it will show you word for word in English, and then what the Greek word is, and then you can click on a little identification code number, and it will tell you what that word means, where you can find it in the scriptures, so on and so forth. So it's really kind of a neat tool. So if you're ever doing your own Bible study, and you want to say, well, what does that word mean? I keep seeing it over and over. Or I think I know what it means, but it'd be really cool to kind of get an idea of what, uh, what, what it meant in the original language. Go to that website, blueletterbible.com. And so it tells me in there that this word, word proteo, it means to be first or to hold first place. And so in the, in the NIV, the, the translation I teach from, uh, it's the word supremacy. And we're talking about in verse second half of verse 18, right? Second half of verse 18 where he, where he says that he, meaning Jesus, so that in everything he, Jesus, might have the supremacy. So he's saying in everything, all things, all parts of our life, Jesus is to have that first place, to hold that first place. If you use a different translation, maybe something like King James or uh, English Standard, it's probably going to use, the, oh, I know King James uses the word preeminence which is just a, it's kind of a cool sounding word, I'll be honest with you, I kind of like that word, preeminence. But preeminence, supreme, it all means the th same thing. It means that Jesus is to hold first place in all things, including our lives. And now I want to talk about why that is, because that's what Paul does here. 
And I want to talk about how that can be, which is, how, which is what he addresses in the second half of his letter. Why that is, that's where you get uh, what we think is probably, this little section that I read, 15 through 20, is probably a hymn or a song sung in the early church. It's kind of got a, a poetic feel to it, right? And so when you're reading through this, this whole little section here is teaching the church why Jesus is supreme, why he should have first place in their lives. Paul doesn't just say it, he explains why that should be so. And he gives a long list. I've kind of boiled it down here, and I'm going to, I'm going to give you briefly seven of them. Seven things we find in verses, uh, verses 10 through 15 that I think show, or excuse me, verses 15 through 20, that I think show us why Jesus should hold first place in our life. We can assume that if you've been around church much, you know that's the answer, but why? And Paul doesn't mind explaining the why to us. He says, first of all, in verse 15, he says that he is the son who is the image of the invisible God. A little later in verse 19, it will say something similar. He says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Him being, of course, Jesus. So what is scripture teaching us here? Is that Jesus is not just another human person. He's not just another man who walked the earth. He's not just a significant historical figure. He, he's not just the one who started a religious movement that eventually took over the world. That's not just who he is. He is also God. Because if he weren't God, then he shouldn't be at the center of our lives, right? There's no way. Why would you put anything that's not God at the center of your life? Nothing's big enough to warrant first place in our lives. But Jesus is God. He is the image of the invisible God. In him all the fullness of God dwells. So that's the first reason. Why does Jesus deserve first place in our life? Because he's not just a man. He is God as well. He's 100% man, 100% God. You've heard me say this before. I know the math doesn't make sense in our mind, but it is a mystery of God that Jesus is 100% man, 100% God. Therefore, he deserves center place in our life. Second thing, continuing in verse 15, is that he is the firstborn over all creation and before all things. He is, in verse 17 it says he's before all things, and in verse 18 it says he is the beginning of all things. That he is first. So he came along first. How many of you here this morning, you are firstborns? Any firstborns here this morning? Yes. Now how many of you firstborns, keep your hand up firstborns, if there was indeed a secondborn, you're not an only child, you had some others. Okay. All right, several of you. All right. Now, what does the firstborn know? The firstborn knows some things that the secondborn and thirdborn don't know yet, right? And that firstborn can use that to their advantage. We've all experienced that, secondborn and thirdborns, fourthborns and beyond, right? We've all experienced a little bit of that. Or they can use those things to kind of help coach and guide those coming behind them, right? So when it says firstborn, it's not literally saying that Jesus did not exist before he was born into the world. Because we know that before Jesus was born into a physical body, Jesus existed from eternity. We're going to see that in just a minute. Before anything was created, Jesus existed. He was not in bodily form yet, but he existed. So what does it mean that he's firstborn? Well, back in the day, to be firstborn was to have a significant role in the life of the family, particularly if that family was royalty. 
because we still even see this in parts of the world today. If you're the firstborn, guess what? When, whenever, whoever, you know, if it's your mother, your father, whoever sits on the throne, when they die, if you're firstborn, particularly if you're firstborn male, you become the next king, right? So what it's saying here is that Jesus has a significant place in the family of God, that he's not just a nobody, he is in fact a somebody. He's not God in the flesh only, but he is also first in line. He is to be king over all things. And what we see is that his firstbornness, I know that's not a word, uh, but his place, his role in God's kingdom to be that firstborn, to be that king who would sit on the throne forever. What does he use that first place for but to serve God and us? That is his natural bent because he is God. Now, again, what I said just a minute ago, he's firstborn over all creation, but that doesn't mean that he was uh, born into the flesh and therefore came into existence. He existed before. How do we know that? Well, look at verse 16, the very next thing. So that's number three. The first, the first reason Jesus should have the prime place in our life, he is God in the flesh. The second is he is king over all things. The third is he is actually co-creator. Did you know that? That Jesus was there when the world was being created. He was part of the, the work of creating everything that we see including all the things that we don't see, which is actually more than the things we do see. Jesus was actively involved in that. That's what the Scripture teaches in verse 16. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him. But then there's another little important phrase. Not only was Jesus a part of creating all that we see and don't see, but all things are actually created not only through him, but for him. Jesus deserves to be first in our life, center of our life, because he is co-creator with the Father and the Spirit. And that's how we got here. He brought us into, into existence. And we have a special guest here today. My mom's here. She came for Grandparents Day last Friday, and she had such a great time. She thought she'd stick around, so we're having a wonderful time. And, you know, when someone brings you into the world, they deserve a special place in your life, right? And God, the Father, God, the Spirit, and God, the Son, brought us into existence, and therefore he deserves center of our life. Now, not only did he give us life, but the fourth thing that we read in verse 17 is that he sustains our life. Look at that with me. He is before all things, and in all things, in him all things hold together. We are being held together by Christ. Jesus is our sustainer for life. He is the reason we have breath in our lungs and strength in our bones. He is the reason you and I are alive right now. He is sustaining us. And that's something we may not think about a lot. And we may not even feel that way. Well, I'm self-sustained. You know, I buy my food. I, buy my, uh, my, my, I pay for my shelter. I, I provide the water. I, I'm the one that does all those things. And we can think that way, but in reality, it's Jesus who is sustaining us, holding us together. And if he's the reason we are still alive today, then he is deserving of being the center of our lives. Not only that, verse 18, 
we read about Jesus being the head of the church. Look at that with me. And he is the head of the body, the church. Now, when he uses this language, this is not uncommon. We see this in other parts of the New Testament. The, the church is to be a body. You see it in places like Romans 12, 1 Corinthians, I think, 12. You see this in different places where it says, you know, you've got Ephesians 4. You've got these different parts of the body. We are a body. Some of, some of us are fingers and toes, and some of us are feet. Some of us are armpits. I'm not going to say who, all right? But, but we are a part of the body of Christ. Well, who's the head of that body? Who's over that body? Who gives it, you know, life and thought and direction? Who's in charge of that body? The body that is the church has been exist in existence since Christ created the church. For some 2,000 years, billions of members are a part of the body of Christ. Who's in charge of that? Let me tell you, even in our church, as your pastor, I'm not in charge of our church. We have a leader, a head over every church in all churches, and that is to be the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the head of the church. And so that means we're a part of a body, and he's in charge. So, of course, what he says goes. Of course, what he wants is what we, we want to do. We, we want to honor him. We want to please him. We want him to be in charge, and we want to honor his authority in our lives. And so he deserves that place at the center, first and foremost. So that was number five. Number six, we're almost done. Two more. This is a huge one. The last two. Don't, don't tune out because these last two are super important. Verse 18. Jesus deserves to be the center of our lives because he is the firstborn from among the dead. That's what scripture teaches us. Verse 18. Uh, we already read the first and the middle part. But the second part is, uh, did I get the verse wrong? He is firstborn among the dead. Yeah, right there in the middle of verse 18. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. And what is that talking about? What does that mean? What significance does that have? Uh, because, you know, when you think about Scripture, don't you know that there are other people who, who raised from the dead? You know that, right? If you've been in Bible study and church some of your life, you probably know that. Can anybody name someone who came back from the dead in the Bible? Anybody? Lazarus, he's the most obvious example, right? But he's not the only one. But that's not what we're talking about with Jesus. Jesus, all those people that we read about in the Bible who died and came back to, to life, they died again. Lazarus is not walking around the earth right now. That would be insane. That would be crazy, right? But he's not. He's gone. Because he lived, he died. He lived, he died again. With Jesus, it's different. This idea of firstborn among the dead means something more significant than just resuscitation. More significant than he came back from the dead. It means that he came back from the dead to never die again. That when he was resurrected into life, it wasn't just, it wasn't just temporary life, it was eternal life. So that we see at the end of, at the end of the, this uh, part of the story of, of Jesus in his ministry here on earth, he ascends in bodily form, alive, to be with the Father until he is to come again to receive us who are in Christ. So he did what I would hope every one of us wants to do. Because when I die, I don't want to stay dead. Now, when I die as a Christian, my soul will be with God in heaven. But 
The body is a good thing. And the scriptures teaches in 1 Corinthians 15 that God is going to raise that body. He's going to transform our physical bodies. He's going to make it fit for an eternity in heaven. And our soul will be reuniting with our body one day. And that day will come when Christ returns. That God is going to make all things whole and beautiful. And I don't know about you, but I long for that. I look forward to that. That we're not just going to be a a disembodied spirit, but we're going to be reunited, body and soul, fit for eternal glory. And Jesus did that first. When he went to the cross and he died, he rose again into eternal life. He passed through death and defeated it for our sake. So that when we go into the grave, that is not our final story. Think about how immense that is. If you could ask for anything, and I mean anything, anything you could imagine. You ever play this game with your kids? If you had a billion dollars, right? You can't do a million anymore because of inflation, but you got to raise the stakes a little bit, right? Like, what, what would you, if you had three wishes, right? Like, like, if that was really on the table, how many of us would choose a nice car, a nice home, a better job? I don't know about you, but I'm going for the big ticket items, y'all. I'm not settling for that stuff. I want to be alive forever in the presence of God. That's what I, like if I could have all the wishes in the world, that's what I want. That's better than anything else. And Jesus goes first and says, I'm the firstborn. What is he saying? The first of many. Not one of one. The first of many who will experience life from the dead. Now, if that's what Christ can do for us, does he not deserve the center of our li- to be in the center of our lives? I think he absolutely does. Last one. Now, how is it possible? Why not just not die at all? Wouldn't that be better? Wouldn't it just be better if we just could, you know, once you become a Christian, boom, you know, your passport's stamped and, and you got eternal life. Starting here, now forever, your, your body is never going to die. Your, your soul will never depart from your body. Why, why, why do we have to pass through death? Why is death a thing at all? And the scriptures show us very clearly there is death because there is such a thing as sin. That the result of sin is death. So we say, well, what hope is there then? And we read, finally, the last thing I want to share with you in verse 20 this morning. It's because Jesus is our great reconciler. Once again, in verse 19, we read that all the fullness of God dwells in him. In verse 20, and through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus was able to do for us what we could never do on our own, which is to reconcile our broken relationship with our Father in heaven. I don't want to take a dark turn here, but I want you to think for a minute with me. Imagine the most important relationship in your life that you could ever have. Imagine if someone broke that relationship because of how they treated you. Now, some of you don't have to imagine that. You've lived it or you're living it. And it's, it's incredibly painful. Imagine that, that this brokenness is so thorough, so complete, there is nothing you can do to fix that brokenness. In fact, you would be crazy to forgive the person who is broken off that relationship with you by the way they've treated you. 
It's just too far gone, right? How in the world could they ever fix it? They couldn't apologize enough. They couldn't, they couldn't buy you enough gifts to make it right. They couldn't say the right words. It's just broken. And nothing can be done. The pain that you have to endure to forgive can feel unimaginable. Now, multiply that kind of pain that maybe some of you have gone through. Multiply that by like a billion or several billion. Or how about every single person who has ever lived on the planet from beginning of history till the end. Imagine that, that all of them crossed you, hurt you, damaged you, sinned against you. Imagine billions, not just one, billions. Now imagine all those people are super important to you. Now our brain can't really fathom that. We've only got a handful of people who are super important to us, right? But imagine if all those billions were. See, this is the place of God. This is, this, is, this is the position of God that the billions he created in love would sin against him, reject him, turn against and, and he knows there is nothing they can do to fix this. There's nothing they can do. But there's something he could do. There's something Christ did. He reconciles us. He brings us back into a right relationship with God. He fixes what we have broken. How? The scriptures teach us right there in verse 20. He makes peace between us and God through his blood shed on the cross. It took nothing less than the blood of Jesus, who is God in the flesh, to scrub away your sins and mine. If somebody blows it in our life pretty big, you know what it's like. You know, they, they really got to come with it, right? I'm expecting some flowers, some candy, a nice dinner. Like, like you really got to show, you know, how much you've hurt me, right? Like, in our human thinking, we can act that way sometimes, can't we? Right? But in this case, God does that. He pays the high price to reconcile us to himself. He doesn't force us to do it because he knows we can't. He does it for us. And this he is Jesus. So if he is our great reconciler, does he not deserve to be the center of our lives? I'll close with this thought. And this is a challenge to us, okay? Because it's not enough just to say we want Jesus at the center of our life. We understand why, at least we get a little bit better of a picture when we read through this part of Colossians. I think we also got to say, okay, now what? So we want him to be the center of our lives. What do, what do we do with that? This is one of my favorite verses in Colossians, in chapter 3, verse 17. He says, Paul says, Paul's covered the theology in the first part of the letter. Now he gets down to the theopraxy, which is another way of saying, how do you live this out? What's the right way to live this out? And he gives one verse that I think summarizes all the other really wonderful things he says in his verse 17 of chapter 3. He says, and whatever you do, whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. So Paul says, Jesus is to be the center of your life. Now that he's the center of your life, all things you do should be done in his name. So I want to ask you some questions, okay? This is how we're going to close. We're going to move into our invitation, a chance to respond, all right? I want to ask you some questions. I want you to think about this. Because if Jesus, if you want Jesus at the center of your life, that means all things we are doing should be done in the name of Jesus. All things. 
And I'm wondering if we might just invite the Holy Spirit to show us the areas in our life where Jesus is not the center. We are, where we are not doing something in his name. And he wants to help us do that thing. Here's some thoughts. Can you say that in your marriage you do all things in the name of Jesus? Can you say in your parenting that you do all things in the name of Jesus? When it comes to relating to your extended family, can you say in your relationship with them, in your interactions with them, you're doing all things in the name of Jesus? When it comes to relating to your neighbors, to your coworkers, to your classmates, can you say in those relationships, I interact with them in the name of Jesus? And the work that you actually do, whatever it is, whether you're at home with the kids or you're off at a job or you're in school, the work that you do is the work that you do done in the name of Jesus. When you are just enjoying your day, relaxing, recreating, is how you unplug and unwind. Is that done? Even that, is that done in the name of Jesus? Can you, is there an area of your life where, you, where, where the Holy Spirit would just pinpoint, you know, we need to work on that? I understand, this is, this is not a guilt trip. All of us have some area, every single one of us, if we're living and breathing, we have some area of our life in which Jesus is coming to us and saying, let's do this in my name instead of in your name. Let's do this in my name. Let's work together on this. Jesus doesn't send you out there to fix your problems on your own. He says, let's do this together. Partner with me and let's work on this. Let's make sure I'm at the center of this area of your life. That what you do and how you interact in this area of your life is done in my name. Is there an area in which you could say, yeah, I could use some growth there? I, I can think of at least a few. Maybe you can think of one. And let's, let's allow the, the Spirit of God to speak to us during this time of response. And, and let's, let's try to think of something. What is something specific God is calling me to go out and do differently? How can I invite God into this area of my life? All right, let's pray together. God, help us that whatever we would do, we would do, whether it's word or deed, we do it all. In the name of Jesus, who deserves to be the center of our life for all those reasons we just found in the scriptures and more that we find in your word. But God, you know that we have so far to go. You know our weaknesses and our selfishness. And God, I thank you, you don't give up on us. In the midst of all that, you never wash your hands of us. You never see us as a lost cause. But you do want to partner with us. You do want to come alongside us and help us to place you at the center of every part of our lives. And I just pray for us now, God. I ask that your spirit would show us where it is in our lives where, where you're not the center, where we are not living and doing everything in that area of our lives in the name of of your son Jesus. Would you show us that? Help us to not be disheartened by that, but to know that, that that's your work in our lives and you're going to go with us to help us place your son Jesus at the center. Thank you for the help that you provide. And in all this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.
But whatever the Lord has laid on your heart, use this invitation as a time to talk to Him about it. All right? Let's stand together for the invitation. Let's sing together. Let's pray together. If you need prayer, I'll be down front. I'd love to pray with you. But let's respond as the Lord has led us.